are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, and today we've got special guest Randy Jackson from the band Zebra. So uh, let's get right into it. Let's go back to way before Zebra and talk about the early days uh, of your career. And I understand that in uh, in the 1960s, you saw the Beatles. Was that what made you want to be a musician? Yeah. I mean, that was my first concert in 1964. I had, uh, I had gotten a, a record of 45 from a a friend of mine from that lived down the block. Her name was Linda Rosenbaum. She came to my front door and had this 45 of I want to hold your hand and saw her standing there. And she said, this is the Beatles. You got to listen to it. And I'd never heard of the Beatles. And I put it on and I couldn't really understand it. You know, believe it or not, I couldn't like get the beat, but I liked what I was hearing. But it was just like it wasn't like listening to, to the theme song to Huckleberry Hound. It was something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh the Beatles came out with a, another album. They can, I got, we got their first record. I got their second record. And so we had a lot of stuff and then heard that the Beatles were coming to New Orleans in September that year. And my parents got us uh, tickets to go see them and uh, took my brother and I to the show. And that that's kind of was the icing on the cake. I mean, seeing them live after just having seen them on TV and listened to the records was quite an experience. The girls were going wild, just like you saw. So this thing was for real, you know, it was like right in front of you. And it was just, it looked like just so much fun. I said, I couldn't imagine doing anything else, you know? So I think that really got the bug in me to, to, uh, to be a musician, you know? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So Randy, I wanted to ask you how you guys actually got together and where the name of the band came from. It's called the Boot Lounge. It was a bar in uh, uptown New Orleans near the Tulane campus. And uh, we met there and we discussed a bunch of names that we each had. And we really didn't, nobody was agreeing with any of the names. We didn't really come up with anything we liked. And uh, as we were leaving the place, there was a picture of a zebra right up above where we were sitting. And we we're just kind of getting up and walking away at the last minute. And we looked up at the wall and there it was, zebra. And we said, let's just call it zebra. That'd be awesome. And uh, that was it. That's interesting. Because it, it turned yeah. out to be, a, I always thought, a great name, you know, a great logo. It, it just, uh, it worked. Yeah, it, it really turned out to be uh, fortunate, you know. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how I got turned on to the band. And I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, which you probably figured you figured out already by the accent. And I first heard about the band. I grew up in a in a place called Gerritsen Beach in Brooklyn, and uh-huh. we had a big bar scene down there. It was a, a beachfront community, big rocker neighborhood, and it was long before you guys were signed and. Our, our big thing was to, uh, if we left the neighborhood, was to go out to Long Island and the clubs. And we started to hear that there was a Led Zeppelin cover band out in Long Island called Zebra. And 
people were just raving about it. And I had seen Zeppelin live uh, in the garden in 77, grew up as a mm-hmm. huge Zeppelin fan from probably 73. And I ventured out there with uh, a couple of my friends. First time I went out there to see you guys, I couldn't get in because it was sold out at, the, at Hammerheads. Hammerheads, okay. Was that the one in Levittown or was that in, out in Iceland? It was in Levittown. Oh, okay. Right. That was really early. Right. And then I we we did go out a second time and and got in to see the show. And it was everything it was I was told it was it was that good. It was quite a few years after that that you guys got signed to your first album. So if you could talk to us a little bit about the Long Island boss scene as a Zep cover band and how it grew into the first record. Well, I mean, you know, when we when we came up from New Orleans, uh, you know, we the way to get gigs was to play covers and the way to not get gigs was really playing originals. You know, you, you couldn't get any gigs at dances or some of the places in Louisiana. So uh, the way we kind of went about it was we, we just wouldn't say, Hey, this is our original. This is one of our songs. You know, we rarely did that. We would just play the songs, you know, and that would get, get us, you know, some honest feedback because, you know, mixed in with all the other stuff if somebody asked what was that song you played you know after this one you know and we knew it was an original then and they said they really liked it then we'd be getting you know that's kind of like an honest opinion of the song without uh, asking people for it you know yeah. and uh and so it was a good way to kind of measure each song and we we kept playing some songs and kind of put others by the wayside during that process so um you know because we had such a long time to before the we actually got the record deal, it, uh, it it helped, you know, to kind of call the songs. You know, we did a we really did a lot of a variety of songs when we first started. I mean, we probably there was like 50 different bands we played songs by, but Zeppelin just happened to be the one that people just kept asking for more and more and more of. So I guess people, you know, always called us a Zeppelin cover band, but we weren't really a Zeppelin tribute band, quote unquote. You know, we always. We, we always played a lot of other stuff too, but people came to see us for the Zeppelin. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, you guys did uh, Rush covers at, at one point too, early on, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, I think we did three Rush songs. You know, we used to play Rolling Stones, Beatles, Robin Trower, uh, Wishbone Ash, Montrose, Rock Candy, uh, ZZ Top, uh, Aerosmith, uh, Deep Purple. Um, even played. Uh, taking care of business for a while, you know, Bachman Turner. Uh, we did a bunch of different different bands. I mean, it, uh, sometimes uh, some of the stuff like will just pop up on a tape that I've got. I, I remember uh, we used to play a pretty pretty good amount of Bowie and uh, and I had a tape and I heard us playing Cracked Actor, which was like kind really? of a, that's, that's... Of, yeah, a little bit of an obscure Bowie song these days. But back then it was uh, it was just really hardcore rock and uh, i lo- always loved that song you know we did queen you know a lot, a lot of the moody blues just a lot of different stuff but the zeppelin was the stuff we were known for you know i i think the thing with zeppelin at least from me going back and reminiscing of, of that time was your ability to do plant and it was at a period of time in the late 70s where plants vocals weren't quite what they were in the early 70s and um you were doing that early Robert Plant stuff to such a high level that it really created a buzz all, all the way, you know, like I said, I lived in small town in, in Brooklyn and, and uh-huh. the buzz went that far back. You know, if, if you like Zeppelin, you got to see these guys. 
Yeah, well, it definitely, definitely helped us a lot. No doubt about it. Now, I wanted to ask you, I know you guys put the Greatest Hits album out. Um, was it in the late 90s there? And it yeah. did have a couple tracks that were, I guess, the original demos from around 1978. Uh, a couple songs that ended up on the first album, of course. Uh, did you guys record a lot of songs at that point? Well, we had a, a lot of demos that we had done before the first record. A couple of the songs uh, never made it to the first album, but made, made it to the second album. Uh, but the songs you're talking about on the Best of Zebra, I think Riverside and Children at Heart, they were both written for the third Zebra record. Right. They were demo third well, Zebra record. Yeah. They well, I thought there record. was something on the albums. Wasn't it like workshop demos from 1978? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were uh, the demo recordings of songs that eventually did make it on records. You know, So I think there's a, a recording of Take Your Fingers From My Hair mm -hmm. uh, from the workshop. I can't, maybe one more chance. I can't, yeah. I can't remember, you know, I'd have to look at it. Yeah. Right I think now. there was a couple. Yeah. Yeah. There was several, several like that, but, but nothing that hadn't been released at that point from the workshop stuff. Right. Right. As far as the first record is concerned, we wanted to go over that a little bit with you to my, in my opinion, it's to this day, one of the great debut records by a, a band. And if you could take us a little bit through the writing process and some of the standout tracks on that. Yeah, I mean, like uh, I was saying before that first record, we had eight years to write it, you know. When I first started writing was like in r around 1974, 1975. And Felix and I had just, we pl had played in a band the previous couple of years called Shepherd's Bush, which was his band. We, he wrote all the material for that band. I hadn't been writing songs at that point, but he got me, kind of got me into that head. And so I started writing uh really stuff just for three piece for bass guitar drums so some of the first songs i wrote were uh, uh like the last time which is on the uh lot zebra live album a song called three uh my life has changed those were those two we put on the Z the fourth zebra record yeah wow but those were all three kind of three piece songs and and the way the that i would usually write the songs is that i would i would just sit uh, with a guitar and just come up with little pieces of songs, uh, maybe with a guitar and, and adding vocal to it, and go back and listen to all these little pieces that I had and try to fit them together like a like a big jigsaw puzzle, you know, where I had four puzzles laying out on the floor and I had to figure out which pieces went to which puzzle, mm -hmm. which is kind of an odd way of doing it. A lot of songs were written that way because I'd come up with a lot of parts that may, might be similar or they work together. Maybe the tempos were the same or whatever. All I had to do is like put them in the same keys. And uh, a lot of those songs were written that way. You know, I just come find the pieces that I like the best and, uh, and kind of force them together in the beginning. And then uh, kind of did the same kind of stuff throughout the uh, the writing process for the for the all three albums, you know. But there there were times when I wrote a whole song at once. Uh, one one of those is "Tell Me What You Want," where I wrote. Uh, I was in New York when I wrote that, and I wrote it at a after we had done a gig at a club called Speaks. It was uh, probably eight o'clock in the morning. It was a long night, and uh, I was sitting there with a couple of friends playing the guitar and it just came to me you know i wrote the the verse and the chorus right there probably in 10 minutes uh didn't maybe didn't have all the lyrics but i had the melody and and the chords down for the you know for 90 percent of the song so that was quick yeah but the majority of songs like who's behind the door took a while i was experimenting with the open tuning 
uh, open G tuning on the guitar. And so I was writing a lot of little pieces with that open G tuning and they were all kind of ethereal kind of sounding stuff. But uh, there were enough pieces where I started forming this song. And usually I really have to have the music and the melody first before I'd start writing lyrics or, or seriously attacking the lyrics. And it was always the music had to come first. I mean, no matter what message I might think I have to say, nobody's going to listen to it if the music doesn't sound good. So I, I, I wanted the, I always wanted the music to be the uh, the standout thing. And then if I had good lyrics, I would just add to it. You know. Well, you mentioned a minute ago, uh, you talked about the song Last Time, which was a, a really early song that you wrote. Yeah. I wanted to always ask you about another song that was on the live album, She's Waiting for You. Uh, where, right. where did that come from? Because that was never recorded, right? No, that wasn't a demo. I think I wrote that when we were out in California around 1980. Wow. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I kind of just remember that there was a lot of bands doing this kind of fast stuff at the time. Or some, for some reason, I was getting hit with it. And I came up with the riff for it and just put it down. I think we were, we were doing some more demos out there. I don't know if we made a demo of that particular song, but I know I wrote it out there. We started playing it. It just never ended up on the first record. I love that song. And like you talked about, I, I love the guitar in it. And especially towards the end there where it gets, you know, real fast and great riff. Yeah. I thought it was a great song. It's kind of, it's kind of furious, you know? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you also, Randy, how did you guys come to sign with Atlantic? What was the process with that? And how did you choose them? We didn't choose them. They kind of chose us. We, we had actually gone to Atlantic. In the, in the late 70s, I think around 1979, uh, to shop a tape that we had. Uh, we had a manager at that point, and they turned us down. They said that, and, the, and this, this was a demo that had, you know, uh, who's behind the door on it, uh, take your fingers from my hair, a bunch of stuff that went, went on the first record. Uh, but they turned us down. They said that this music sounded dated. They said, uh, you know, if you came out 10 years earlier, you know, we'd think about signing us. So... <laughs> You know, having grown up, you know, listening to stuff from two years earlier, I, I couldn't argue with them about it. So, well, maybe that's because that's my big influence there, you know. Yeah. But uh, but after that, you know, we we had, and we shopped it to another couple of labels. I think RCA turned us down, so a couple of others, and and we just kind of we were doing great in the clubs, you know, making good money and bought I bought a house, you know. At that point, and uh, you know, I was kind of resigned to the fact that we may never get a record deal. Program director for a radio station here on Long Island, WBAB, program director named Bob Buckman came out, was a big fan of the band, and would come to see us and asked me to give him some of the demo tapes that we had because he would like to try to play it on the radio on their homegrown show. And they did do that. They played it on the homegrown, and then they started getting requests regular request for it at the station so bob put the songs into regular rotation at the station and they became just the most requested songs at the station we didn't have a record out nobody could buy it so they had to listen to it on you know on the radio unless they recorded it on a, a machine you know but uh bob you know was a kind of carrying the flag for us at that point and he had a visit from a guy who had just started out it was starting out at atlantic records a guy named jason Blom, and uh Bob was having a conversation with him about some other Atlantic business, and in the in the conversation, he brought Zebra up and explained to Jason that uh, that we had the top five requested songs at the station for the last three months 
and uh, he said, "Oh, you mean for local bands?" And he says, "No." He says, "Period." He says wow. he was showing him, you know, Zeppelin's in through the outdoor. I think uh, all of my love was like number eight, but Take Your Fingers from My Hair was number two. Wow. Back in Black was, you know, down there in the somewhere like number six or whatever. But we were getting more requests than that, and so he was kind of half believing it, but. You know, he, I guess he was convinced eventually, and he brought the uh, brought the tape back to Atlantic, and he had and Jason had an in to see the president of Atlantic Records, and and the president of Atlantic Records at that point was a was new. He was he had just become the president. His name was Doug Morris, so he wasn't there when our tape was was shot. You know, the two years earlier, you know, he took a liking to it, and um, the story is he took it into his his limo on the way home back to Long Island because he lived in Long Island, and. Uh, he had the tape with him. He hadn't listened to it, but he put it in and he put the demo tape in. And first song in it was he was behind the door and listening to it. And it's got the long acoustic intro. And after about 30 seconds of the, the intro, he just ejected the tape. <laughs> There's no hook here. They're not even singing yet. This, I'm, I'm not listening to this. But, you know, fortunately, the, the radio was tuned to WBAB and they happened to be playing that song at that point in the song and he was very confused you know i just ejected this thing and it's still playing you know that's a great and, story yeah and so he uh he put the tape back in and ejected it again and then just finally said it must be playing on the radio so he he listened to the whole song on the radio and at the end uh, you know the dj said that's the number one requested song at the station here at the station who's behind the door zebra so of course you know he called the next day and we were signed that was it WBAB was a great st- 102.3, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I I used to have a a Radio Shack signal booster attached to my stereo in the house so I could pull that station and and Yeah, it. it was it was a great it was a great station. Yeah. And there were a lot of great stations back in the day too, you know, New York stations too. Uh and they and they played quite a lot of different stuff than uh New Orleans stations did. Uh, in particular, I remember when we came to New York, one of the big differences was the amount of, of the doors that got played. Uh, oh, my they'd God. They hardly played the doors at all in New Orleans. Yeah. Not to say the doors weren't big, but up here, it was like they were being played as much as any band, you know? Pretty amazing. The doors had a tremendous uh, following in, in all throughout Brooklyn. No matter what club you went to in Brooklyn, at least where I, where I grew up on. The doors, yeah. the doors were like the Beatles in the 60s. That's how the doors yeah. were in the 70s. It was huge. It yeah. was huge. I wanted so. to ask you about something. Um, we're talking about the first album, and of course, one of the you know, the songs uh, off that album is "Take Your Fingers from My Hair." Uh, what did you have? You heard the uh, the Dream Theater version that they covered back in two thousand and nine? Yes, I have, and uh, I loved it. I thought it was great. We were really flattered that they did it, and uh, you know, they they pretty much stuck to the original version. Uh, the only difference was. You know, Petrucci at the end with the guitar solo went off and did his own thing towards the very end. But even he kind of kept it to what it was on the record. So I was I was really impressed with it. And and I was flattered that uh, that they had done it. You know, yeah, Yeah. a big thing for the band, you know. Yeah. And I thought they did a great job with it, too. They sure did. Um, so let's move on to the second album now and talk a little bit about that. Um, no Telling Lies was released in 1984. Uh, How did that all come about? How was the recording of that one? Well, No Telling Lies kind of caught me with my pants down because we'd <laughs> gone out on the road with the promoting the first record. And I should have been writing, but instead I was just out there having a good time pretty much and uh, not writing as much as I should have been. So when we came off the road and all of a sudden it's time for the next record, 
it's like, oh, okay, you know, and so I had to go back into my tapes and and really start putting together other songs, you know, which I hadn't done in a couple of years. I mean, we had, it was kind of a continuous process and I hadn't put everything I had together at that point. But uh, like most of the songs from the first record had been derived from these same tapes. So, uh, you know, I went through the tapes and, and uh, came up with uh, most of the material for the for the second record. I think the only song I actually wrote between the first and second record was uh, Lullaby. And all the rest were like, either you know songs that i had written previously a couple of them we had already demoed like bears and waiting to the summer's gone but stuff like uh, no telling lies itself were uh, you know pieces of songs that i had previously and i just kind of put them together in the same method i described earlier where i just i took the pieces of the songs that worked and put them together and uh so it was kind of i wish i i wish i'd have been writing more but fortunately we had enough to to make the record and uh you know, a lot of people liked it. So, yeah. Well, it's that that age old story, and you mentioned before how you had eight years to uh, to write the first album, right? And the songs were yeah. start, and then you, you kind of now you're you go out there, you tour, you had a lot of success on the first album, and then you know now it's time to do album number two, and you're like, okay, what do I got left here? You know, I wasn't you know doing what I, I should have done when I was out on the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, when when I got when we when we went out on the road for the second record. That's all I did was write. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and it was and it paid off. I was able to like put together a bunch of songs for the third record. And uh, it, you know, felt much more comfortable with that group of songs than I had on the No Telling Lies. Well, as a fan, I was too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I thought the, the third record from cover to cover was almost on par with the, with the first one. And that's nice. that's a tall tale because that's that first record is iconic. But I thought that third record was a huge rebound uh, and, and right right in line in, in quality from beginning to end with the first record. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, I worked hard on it. It was kind of disappointing that they dropped us after that record. You know, I, I, I knew at that point what I should have done, but you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I when that came out in 1986, I was like 16 years old. So that was like my introduction to Zebra. And I, I just love that album and, and always, you no. know, always have. Of course, you know, obviously the first album is a classic, but I, I love 3.5. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites. too. So then we talk about a little bit the, the live album that uh, came out called Zebra Live, which is, I, I've always been a big fan of this record. I think it's really well done. What did you, what were your feelings on it? Well, it was, you know, Atlantic had dropped us in 1987 and we, then they called me back around a year later to do a solo record. You know, I had suggested to them, why don't we just do another Zebra record, but no, they just wanted to do a solo record. So I was doing the solo record and in the middle of it, you know, I think the band with Zebra, we were talking about doing a, a, a live record. And so I, I mentioned it to uh, Jason Flom, the guy who had gotten assigned to begin with. And he said, let's do one of Atlantic. So that's that's what we did. Uh, we recorded it at uh, Sundance in uh, Bayshore in Long Island. We got two good nights of recording, even though it was snowing like crazy and uh, really? weird kind of weird kind of time of year to be uh, to be doing it. But. Uh, the recordings came out really good, so when it came down to the mixing, we had a lot to choose from. Yeah, I thought it was a great album, great live album for sure. Thanks. 
So you mentioned about, you know, that you guys got dropped in 87, the live album comes out, you know, a few years later, you were approached to basically do a solo album that ended up coming out in 1991, right? Uh, as the China Rain album. Can you talk well, a little bit about that? I don't know if it was 91 or 93. It should have been 91 if it was released on Atlantic. But uh, when the album was finished, when, when I finished the China Rain record, I got a call from Atlantic saying that they had decided to not release the record. It didn't, it didn't really have as much to do with, with what they thought of the record as it did with what was happening in the music scene. And that was that Nirvana had pretty much changed the whole playing field. Yeah, sure. Uh, when they came out, and, and it had been about a year at that point that Nirvana had been out, and Atlantic was kind of playing catch-up to the whole grunge scene. Uh, I don't even think Stone Temple Pilots was out at that point, you know, so they were they were really looking for, for bands like that, and they didn't even want to spend any money on 80s bands. The 80s mm-hmm. bands were just, I guess their experience over the previous 12 months had just been that it was just money being wasted and radio stations weren't playing it, so they decided not to release the China Rain. Yeah, that's an age-old story. So many bands experienced that around that time, right? Yeah, and um, so I was able to get the masters from Atlantic, and we we got uh, got it released on a label over here uh, called Beyond Records, and there was another label over in Europe that released it. Uh, Dig it, Dig it, Dig out it out of Italy. Yeah, out of Italy, right? And uh, and we made a video for it uh, of a song called "You're Only Lonely Today." We never did tour with the record. The band never performed live, but uh, but we had a lot of great songs on it, and uh, I thought it was a great record. I mean, I wrote uh, one thing that I was doing now at this point, writing with different people, and of course you can't be you know sitting there doing the the writing like I had been in the past, and so we were writing songs all in one session. You know, you know it worked out well. You know, I uh, I wrote with a lot of different people, got uh, kind of a good education on how different people wrote. You know, even though the record never came out, you know, as it was supposed to come out, uh, it was a good experience for me. Well, talk about some of the, the people that you did write on that album. I know, uh, I think Jack Ponte had a bunch of co-writes on that and uh, I know yeah. some other guys, right? Yeah, Jack Ponte. And um, I wrote with uh, Mark Slaughter, Dana Strum and Mark ended up producing one, uh, one of the songs on the record. Um, I wrote a couple of songs with a guy named John Dinacola, even though they didn't get put on the record. Uh, he had written the uh, theme song to uh, the dance mo- movie, which um, um, my my brain is with Bill Medley, Summer Camp. Dirty Sorry. Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Dirty yeah, Dancing. Yeah. The time of my life. He had right. written that. They put me together with him. And uh, and I wrote a, a song with Paul Stanley from Kiss that, that came out really great. But again, that one didn't uh, get on the record. There were, and I'm stretching my brain, I wrote with... Um, <laughs> I wrote a bunch of songs with uh, Mark Hitt from Rat Race Choir or some of the other people. I'd have to go back through my list. My brain's kind of <laughs> not le- allowing me to do it, but I've got a lot of demos that were never released. And so there's a lot of material there that's uh, it's good. It still holds up till today, you know? Yeah. Uh, any thoughts of ever doing anything with that? Yeah. I mean, I'm always thinking about it, you know, but that's my problem. I think, and I don't do so. <laughs> Preparation is my biggest enemy, you know? Yeah. But, it was uh, a hell of a band though. I mean, you had a young Brian Titchy in the band. Yeah. You had Teddy Cook who had been with Dio for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, uh, it was an impressive yeah. band. Yeah. Uh, Teddy's one of the best musicians I know of, and uh, you could do just about anything, just a, a natural. And when I uh, was auditioning drummers, you know, I auditioned a lot of drummers. I have all those 
those auditions on tape too, on videotape. But Brian just stuck out, you know, as soon as I heard him play, he was just like comfortable, laid back. You could tell he has confidence and he could play his ass off. And uh, so it wasn't wasn't really a hard decision to pick him. And that was kind um, of the infancy of, I, I'm guessing, his pro career, because this goes back 30 years ago. Yeah, he uh, I think at that point, the only kind of professional gig he had done was with a girl named Jody Bon Jovi. I don't oh, know yeah. if she was. Yes. I don't know if she was related to John. I think it was like a cousin or distant cousin yeah, or something like that. It was yeah. a cousin or, or, or supposedly it was a cousin. Yeah. <laughs> might, might, might have been. But uh, that was the only thing I was that I knew that he had done. And of course, after that, you know, he, he's played with just about everybody. Yeah, no, days. he's become quite a quite a name in the scene. And rightly so. He's really impressive. And I, I saw Teddy Cook with Dio on the Lock Up the Wolves tour. And yeah, he he was a terrific bass player. It was actually a, a a big step up from what Dio had previously as his bass player. I was really impressed with him. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about the guitar player because I've never seen anything else that he's been in. Yeah, Ronnie was a guy that was in a band down in Louisiana, Ronnie Snow, and he was. Uh, I had done uh, a couple of demos for them down south, uh, just arranged some songs that they had written. He he had a completely different style than I did, more of a well, how could I put it? Uh, he did a lot of tapping and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of flash speed guitar playing, you know, um, but he was melodic and I thought that would be a good addition to the band. So I uh, got Ronnie. He did, he, did, he never really did anything afterwards. He uh, he went back and lived in New Orleans. He's still down there. And I've, I've seen him a couple of times down there, but, uh, you know, he just never did anything. And before that, he had played in some local bands uh, and did pretty well in the in the Louisiana area. But that 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 was Ronnie's career, you know, great guitar player. Though. Well, now uh, after that, we we move ahead uh, 17 years after the uh, the last Zebra album, and you guys finally recorded and put out four. Uh, how yeah. did how did that all come about, and what took so long? Uh, just you know, I guess not having to do a record. Uh, nobody was waiting for the next Zebra record, and was that you know we I can't really say why exactly it worked like that. We didn't really. I mean, there was a period of time when uh, you could just make a record at home, but by the time the fourth record, we were making the fourth record, I was able to get all the equipment that we needed, and so we didn't have to go into a studio anymore. And uh, so we did the drums down in Louisiana on uh, some DA88. Uh, test game machines and uh, then I converted that those tapes over into a, a computer I used a, an old Macintosh and we did the rest of the record on that and uh, I recorded it in my house and most of the overdubs matter of fact I think all, pretty much all of the overdubs were done at my house and mixed it at home too so it didn't really cost us much you know except our time yeah, and that probably had a lot to do with it, you know. Well, now you had yeah. the band had played. You'd played a handful of the songs from that album for years prior in in your live shows, right? Sure, sure. I mean, we had we had like seven years for the first record and seventeen for the fourth record. Yeah, uh, but we yeah we had been doing uh, a bunch of those songs live, and um, you know, and then it just you know it just kind of happened. You know, it, we didn't record it really quickly. I mean, it was a it took. A total of from the time we started actually recording to finishing it was about almost three years. It took a took quite a while, but um, but we were really happy with it, you know. And uh, we pushed it when it came out, and uh, still uh, a lot of the songs from that record are some of the most requested songs, you know, 
when yeah. we would do our live shows. So I actually saw you guys when I guess when the album came out, you did a little promotional uh, show over at this uh, record store in New Jersey named Vintage Vinyl, and yeah. you guys played like a full-on electric set in the store. I think it was about a forty-five-minute set. It was it was great seeing that in, in a record store. Yeah, yeah. By then we were able to do that kind of stuff. You know, uh, technology was changing. And uh, I think even then I was I was using a pedal uh, instead of a guitar amp. I was using just a pedal for the sound. Okay. And we were going direct with a lot of stuff. So a lot of stuff had changed, and uh, that that was kind of how what what drove why and how we did uh, the records after we got dropped. You know, well, let's, just being able to afford to do them. Well, let's back up a little bit because you you were talking about computers and things like that. Now, I, I know in the early 90s, uh, you started doing your solo shows. In around 1992, you did a solo show where it was kind of like a one-man band sort of thing, right? And you yeah, used a, yeah. a Macintosh computer at that point, right, to kind of tie everything together? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, after, after Atlantic decided not to release the China Rain, I was kind of couched for two weeks. You know, I was in a state of shock because I had worked a couple of years on this project. And uh, so I, I got off the couch eventually and I said, you know, I'm going to put something together that I don't have to rely on anybody else for, that I can try to make money. And so I got got the, on the computer and I started programming, you know, a bunch of songs. Some of them were originals and some of them were uh, covers. Mm -hmm. And um, And I spent a year doing it. Uh, it took a long time, but it was all MIDI. I wasn't recording tracks. I was, you know, using MIDI. And if anybody knows what MIDI is, it basically uh, is a way to play the keyboards outside of the computer. And so, you know, I had multiple tracks to do that. I also programmed the lights. Uh, I had a, a MIDI lighting show, and I also had a, a soundboard that was operated by MIDI. So I was able to control the, the changes, the levels, uh, the mutes, everything from this from these and it took a long time obviously you know so i i could really play with the mix so when i went to the gigs i had all this equipment i had keyboards with me and a rack full of uh outboard gear that was all being controlled by midi and it all had to be working right but but once i got it all set up and and then got the, the thing to fine tune the pa you know i just had to plug my guitar in and my vocal mic and i operated the computer with my feet and wow. start and stop the computer and uh and i could just go and play with that and it would uh, do the mix for me you know it mixed my vocal in with the uh with everything else and did the delays and you know at, at that point you can we were at the point where you could do just about anything anything a person could do you could do with midi you know yeah and if you had a computer it would repeat so it, it was very cool you know no that's wild because I, I think back i mean i've always been a, a mac guy and and i you know my first computer was around 1993 and it was a Mac. And I mean, I remember and think back to those days and you had like, you know, 500 megabyte hard drives and, you know, the processors yeah. were like nowhere near what they are today, obviously. And it's, so it's wild to think that you did all that on, on a, you know, an early Mac computer or, you know, a 1992 it was Mac. A, it was a Mac SE, you know? Yeah. Well, that was, was like real high end at that time, right? That was like well, the big. Yeah, when I bought that machine, yeah, it was like thirty five hundred dollars. It was it was expensive, but the thing was, it was the you know it was the all one piece, and it and it had the little screen on it, a black and white. I don't think it there wasn't even color. Then. Right. Yes. No. Black you're right. and white screen. Yep. And uh, but I did all all the work on there. And the funny thing was, when I first went to do the first gigs, you know, I had this huge PA system with a lot. It was loud. 
And so when I started it, when I was testing this PA system with everything, I noticed that the screen on the Mac just would go crazy when the music started because <laughs> it was just make, I mean, it was like you would switch to a channel that didn't have any signal, you know, on the TV, yeah. it went nuts. <laughs> so <laughs> while the song was going, there was no way to see where you were in the song or anything. It's pretty pretty crazy, but it still worked, you know, it was just affecting the screen. So Randy, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, how you got involved with the sign project, a, uh, a Frontiers, I, I guess this was a, not meant to be a touring band, but more of a, a project. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it was. We did play a couple of shows. We did a couple of shows here and over in Europe, uh, but not a lot. Um, but it was Mark Mangold who contacted me about doing a record with him. And I knew Mark because he, oh, he was one of the guys I had written with for the China Ring uh, that I'd forgotten to mention. Mark and I wrote a couple of songs. And Mark contacted me about doing a project with him. And originally, we were going to try to get uh, Brad Delp to be the singer. And we just could not get through to him. The, for some reason, people weren't even going to let us talk to him. It was weird. And we kind of gave up on it at one point, you know. Uh, and we got we contacted Terry Brock, and Terry's a great singer. And we brought Terry in, and Terry ended up uh, writing with Mark and I most most of the songs on the record. Uh, Terry knew uh, Billy Greer from Kansas, and he contacted Billy and got Billy involved. And I knew Bobby Roninelli, and so I, I asked Bobby if he wanted to do the drums, and you know there we had it. You know, we were ready to roll. And uh, and at that point, we were able to do the entire record at our homes. You know, Mark had a studio at his apartment and I had the studio here at home. And so we did it that way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm proud of that record. It, it came out great. The songs are great. That's a terrific record. It, it, it did yeah, well. Really, it got a lot of buzz. And um, I, I thought it was very strong record. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I liked it a lot, too. I, I don't know if I could necessarily say that about the follow-up, but um, speak a little that, bit about that. That. Um, that was Mark's record. I, you know, I didn't I didn't have the time to put into doing another record, and I don't think Terry did either. And But Mark was just adamant on doing another record. So he went ahead and did it, and got I got involved a little bit in it. I agreed to, you know, sing on a song, and I, I think I might have written a piece of a song with him, you know, but he had a different group of musicians doing the record, and it certainly, I just don't think that, you know, the there was as much put into that second record as there was into the first, at least from my viewpoint, the the song-wise, song you know. I just thought the first record had some great, great, great songs. It did, and I think the problem with the second record is that the marketing on it was such that it led people to believe that you and Terry Brock were, you know, like instrumental as, in it as much as you were in the debut, and it turns out you you were not. Right, which, you know, I guess you can't blame them for doing that, but, uh, you know, it certainly deceives people. It's uh, kind of leaves a bad taste in their mouth, so. Yeah, it was kind of a weird follow-up to a, a, a great debut record I, I, and i know there were two different versions of it floating around at different you know there was the mark mangold version there was the frontiers music version uh, two different right. mixes which uh, muddied up the waters even more than they needed to be muddied yeah up. yeah mark wasn't getting along with uh, frontiers as well as uh, you would expect or hope for and uh, i think he you know he wanted the record to be a certain way and they they were arguing with him about it and so you did have a couple of different versions of it his version actually was better. I, I, I have it. Um, 
a friend of mine uh, in, in England had sent me a copy of it, and I thought his his version and his mix was better. What whatever issues they had, I, right? I, I can't speak to, but yeah, I I would side with him on that though. That I thought his version yeah, was better. Yeah. Well, you know, it was uh, something I you know I I just I, I listened to the record like a couple of times after it was done, and I, I just uh, you know it it certainly didn't have the uh, the passion of the first record. No, but uh, but I didn't. Mark really wanted to do it. I mean, maybe it was good I didn't do it because it might have taken seventeen years to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, we'll talk about. Let's say. I mean, we talked about you know the the seventeen years between uh, three point five and and four. Um, what's the band currently up to? I know you guys seem to play a handful of shows every year. I mean, obviously the the last couple of years the pandemic has done a number on everybody. But uh, what's currently up with the uh, Zebra? Well, we've been threatening to do another record for about 10 years. And, um, well, you got seven more then, so you... <laughs> no, uh, we've got we've past that point now. We're we're way past 17 years. <laughs> That's right. Before. Yeah, and I would have never thought that. I kind of remember guys saying, back when the fourth record came out, he says, you know, we should just do a record every year, just put it out, you know, <laughs> no matter what, you know, we just throw some songs together, you know. Uh, it was pretty funny. Maybe it was a good idea, but I, I was never about that. You know, I wanted whatever we put out, I wanted it to be, you know, have some level of quality to it. So, yeah, but that's not why it's taken so long. I think, uh, you know, you have kids, you have grandkids and life gets in the way. And, you know, like I said, nobody was like waiting for the next Zebra record. You go to shows and people want to hear the old songs and you kind of <laughs> get in a rut of, of that. You know, yeah. I, I kind of remember when Elton John said he wasn't even going to make any more records because the record company wouldn't even push the new stuff anyway. So he didn't even care to, to write it. But um, but it still doesn't mean you don't want to write. So, I, I, you know, I've been writing over the years. And, you know, we just haven't gotten down to actually putting a, a record down. But in the last year, we started putting tracks down in a way, try to come up with a formula to, to work at different locations and not have to be in the same place to record. And it's it, it looks like it's going to work out. Guy has a, a nice studio set up down in Louisiana. And uh, we have our engineer, Peter Coopersmith, in Long Beach. And, um, and then I have a studio out here. And we can just, you know, remotely just fly the tracks back and forth to each other and get, uh, get the stuff done. Felix yeah. lives near Peter, so he can go in there and do his stuff. Yeah, and uh, so we're we're trying we're trying that to see how if that works out. Um, oh, that's good news. So what's what's on the uh, the live front? I, I see you guys have a, a few shows for 2022 planned. Yeah, we uh, we've got some shows coming up in March in a couple of weeks, and uh, we those were shows that were originally booked for early September. We were supposed to be doing those shows back when uh, there was a real big rise, you know, in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and the and the places we were playing at were just they were going, can we can we delay this? Can we can we postpone it? Yeah. Originally, they wanted to postpone it till December. And I said, no, I said, I, I think December is going to be bad. I don't I think it's going to be, you know, whatever happens, it's going to be worse. And so December, let's wait till March. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but it. It seemed like it might be a better time, and uh, so that's what we did. So hopefully, uh, you know, when it comes around in a couple of weeks, we'll be uh, we'll be okay to play. So we've been gearing up to go on the road with it, and, uh, you know, doing all the uh, getting prepared for the uh, the gigs and the sound equipment and everything. So we're we're ready to go. Now you guys are doing the uh, the M3 festival this year down in Columbia, Maryland. Yeah, yeah, I got a call to do that a couple of months ago. 
and uh, that should be fun. It'll be an easy gig. We just fly in and hop on stage and do your 40 minutes, hour, whatever it is. You know, we've done a lot of festivals in the past on uh, some of the cruises, the rock cruises, and uh, they're always fun. You get to see a lot of people you haven't seen in a long time, so. Yeah, I've been to several of the M3s over the years, and yeah, they're, they're always a fun time for sure. Where uh, where can fans keep up? Uh, is it uh, thedoor.com? Is that still the, yeah, uh, the website for uh, all the news? There's a lot of stuff on thedoor.com. The schedule's always updated, door.com. We all, I got, uh, Guy and I have Facebook pages. If you go to Facebook, you can really see what's going on day to day with me. And you just have to type in Randy Jackson of Zebra. Okay. Or Randy Jackson Zebra. It should be pretty easy to find my uh, my pages. I forget what Guy's Facebook page is, but he should be easy to find. Yeah, that's great. We'll plug those for sure on our, our site once we get the uh, the interview going. Um, cool. So yeah, any anything else on the horizon for you? Some more solo shows too? I'm always doing solo shows. I've got a couple this week, a couple next week. I do do a lot of private parties all around the country. I'm uh, going to be down in uh, Florida in a couple of weeks. Uh, doing something for the uh, Joe Namath uh, golf tournament. They hired me to play at a party that they're having down there for that. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm a big football fan. So oh, cool. I'm nice. sure I'll meet that's, some that's people. Cool. Yeah, it's, it, it, I think it'll be cool. And, uh, you know, I'm doing some shows in Louisiana. You know, we're just keep trying to fill in the schedule. I mean, since the pandemic, we haven't, we haven't played very much at all, but it's starting to kind of pick up a little bit in uh, – I've been vaccinated. Everybody's gotten their vaccinations. And I think after this last, you know, COVID surge, uh, seeing how it went, uh, we're a little more confident that we can go out and pretty safely play without being worried about it, you know? Yeah. No, it's definitely more optimism. Like you said, I mean, it seems to be kind of starting to subside a little bit. So hopefully, you know, everybody keep their fingers crossed and uh, everybody can get back to playing shows again. I, I last saw you guys in, I think it was 2018 in New Jersey. Where was that? Uh, in, in, New Jersey at the, uh, the Debonair Music Hall in Teaneck. Oh yeah. Okay. I think that was the last so time I saw you guys that was play. Like, yeah, that was, uh, I think, the last gig we played before the pandemic was maybe in 2019. Might have been in 2019. No, I take that back. We did play in 2020. We did we did a show in, in uh, January, February of 2020. Mm, right before everything kind of went crazy. Yes, right before, yep. It's it's tough now. You, you're trying to remember the years anymore, right? It's like the, <laughs> the last two years didn't exist. Yeah, it, that's right. There's a void, you know, and it's it, it's definitely been strange, you know. Randy, it's it's been a great conversation, and uh, Tom and I really appreciate this. And uh, anything you wanted to say, Tom? No, I, I I had a great time doing this, and I was glad you gave us your time, Randy. Appreciate it. Oh yeah, no problem. You know, I could also tell people if they wanted to, uh, they could get on the Zebra email list. If oh, okay. Want to record. How do you uh, how do you do that? Where um, yeah, if you want to uh, join the Zebra email list, and we don't bombard you with email, by the way, but uh, you can go to our website, thedoor.com, and there's a place there where a button you can click to uh, join the email list, and uh, it's going to ask you to confirm that it's you, so you might get a uh, an email back to confirm that you want to be on the list. And uh, but uh, we'll send out an email with our schedule, and usually. The, the most current dates are going to be right in the subject, so you don't even have to open it up if you just want to see what's going on that week. Okay, great. Well, everybody, uh, Randy Jackson from Zebra, uh, make sure you join uh, the mailing list on uh, thedoor.com. And uh, appreciate it, Randy. Thank you for the talk tonight. Yeah, thank you, guys. I had a good time. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate it. Great. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. I've been wasting my time. Oh, I am losing my mind 
Slam of the 